Good morning and welcome again. We're glad that you're here today. We're thankful for your presence. Appreciate Jordan reading our scripture today. Did a great job and we appreciate that. We're going to be looking at the book of Daniel. Specifically, we want to look at chapter 5 today. Daniel chapter 5. Before we begin, as always, we express appreciation to those of you that are visiting. We're always grateful to have you with us. It may be that you're looking for a church home. We would encourage you to consider the work here. We'd love to have you come and be a part of our church family. We'd love to have you come and help us as we do our best to make known Christ in this community. Appreciate so much all the great work that goes on here. And we are very thankful that Jared and Anna now have their baby home. And hopefully and prayerfully everything will go well with them. I don't see Jared, but I know he's here somewhere. But, oh, he's up there. But anyway, we're glad that all is well with the baby and pray that she will continue to grow and I know that she'll be a blessing to them. As we look at Daniel chapter 5, we had before us a tremendous account of a change in the guard. When chapter 5 was written, the backdrop, of course, Babylon is a world power and in control. What happens in chapter 5 is there is literally a changing of the guard. The kingdom known as Babylon gives way to the Medes and the Persians. All of this was made known by the handwriting on the wall. It's not uncommon for us to sometimes use the expression, I can see the handwriting on the wall. We're in the midst of a political year in which we will elect a president. We've already had some that have seen the handwriting on the wall and they've bowed out. Won't be long, there will be others that will see the handwriting on the wall and they too will step aside. Belshazzar was the king of Babylon. Some would say serving as a co-regent over Babylon. His grandfather was Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar, of course, was well known. It was under the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, that the people of God, the children of Israel, had been taken into 70 years of captivity. And through the gracious hand of God, they were allowed to return to their homeland under the edict of Cyrus, the king of the Medes and the Persians. I want us to look at chapter 5 for a moment or two. I want to begin by talking about the feast of Belshazzar. Really, when you look at chapter 5, you might sum it up by saying that in looking at the kingship of Belshazzar, what God is going to tell him is simply this. You're done. Your time's up. And that's exactly what transpires in this book. So let's begin by looking at the great feast of Belshazzar. The passage that Jordan read a moment ago in verse 1, 
Belshazzar the king made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in the presence of the thousand. While he tasted the wine, Belshazzar gave the command to bring the gold and silver vessels which his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple which had been in Jerusalem. When Nebuchadnezzar plundered the city of Jerusalem and carried the people of God into captivity, and there were three waves of captivity, one of the things that he did, he took some of the treasures, the treasures that are spoken of in chapter 5, would have been those things that had been in the most holy place. And so it says that in continuing on that the king and his lords, his wives, his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought the gold vessels that had been taken from the temple of the house of God which had been in Jerusalem and the kings and his lords, his wives, his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze and iron, wood and stone. When I think about this great feast, and I suspect it became somewhat of a drunken party, and all these people are present, and they are, as we would say, hooping and hollering, and in verse 4, the Bible tells us that they engaged in the praise of vain idols, the gods of gold and silver, bronze and iron, wood and stone. Sometimes people do foolish things when they get drunk. No wonder Solomon said, wine is a mocker, strong drink is raging, and whoever is deceived thereby is not wise. In verse 5, we are introduced to the fear of Belshazzar. Listen, if you would, to what the account says. In the same hour, the fingers of a man's hand appeared and wrote opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the part of the hand that wrote. Then the king's countenance was changed. Let me tell you what. If out of nowhere a hand appeared and began writing on that wall to my right, it'd get my attention. And I suspect it would get all of our attention. It got Belshazzar's attention. As a matter of fact, the text tells us it scared him to death. The Bible says in verse 6 that his thoughts troubled him so that the joints of his hips were loosened and his knees knocked together against each other. Ever been so scared your knees shook? Ever been so frightened, so absolutely scared. You couldn't hardly say a word. Belshazzar was terrified, and rightly so. Out of nowhere, this hand appears and writes four simple words on the wall. When Belshazzar sees this, obviously he wants to know. What's it mean? So look at verse 7. The king cries aloud to bring in the astrologers, the Chaldeans, the soothsayers. And the king spoke, saying to the wise men of Babylon, Whoever reads this writing 
and tells me its interpretation, that is, he wanted an explanation, shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck, and he shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. So whoever could explain this would be exalted in the kingdom. Unfortunately for Belshazzar, none among his inner circle could interpret the meanings of these four specific words. And so in verse 9, the Bible says that Belshazzar was greatly troubled. His countenance was changed. His lords were astonished or perplexed. So, he's got a, a dilemma, as we would say. He needs somebody to interpret what has been written on the wall. So the queen, the queen here would have been the wife of Nebuchadnezzar. She says in verse 10, O king, live forever. Do not let your thoughts trouble you, nor let your countenance change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy God. Now she's talking here about Daniel. Daniel had had the privilege of serving in the court of Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar, the grandfather of Belshazzar, for many, many years. Back in chapter 2, he had interpreted a vision that Nebuchadnezzar had on one occasion. And in the interpretation of that vision, he told him about four world empires that would rise and fall in successive order. He began with Babylon, and he told him in a very succinct way that Babylon would give way to the Medes and the Persians, who would later yield to the Grecians. The Grecians would later fall to the Romans. And then he said in verse 44, and in the days of these kings, that is, in the days of the Roman kings, God's going to set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, unlike these earthly kingdoms, that have come to power and later fallen. So Daniel is the man of God. And Daniel is called upon to interpret the words, the handwriting, as we would say, on the wall. So in verse 13, Daniel is brought in before the king, and the king spoke and said to Daniel, Are you that Daniel, who is one of the captives from Judah? Whom my father, the king, brought from Judah? Well, the answer would be yes. He said, I have heard of you that the Spirit of God is in you, that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in him. You think about the reputation that Daniel had. He said, I have heard of you that you can give interpretations and explain enigmas. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck, and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Daniel basically tells him, look, I'm not interested in these things. But he said, I will make known the interpretation. So I want you to think with me for just a moment or two about the fate of Belshazzar. Because really and truly, here is the gist of chapter 5, when you talk about the fate, the handwriting on the wall, Daniel is going to talk to him about some things 
that were applicable to the situation at hand. The first thing that he's going to tell Belshazzar is this. You have disregarded history. So we talk about the eras of King Belshazzar. Here's what it said, verse 18. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, a kingdom, and majesty, glory, and honor. And because of the majesty he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. He said, whomever he wished, he executed. Whomever he wished, he kept alive. Whomever he wished, he set up. Whomever he wished, he put down. But he said, when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened in pride, he was deposed from his kingly throne, and they took his glory from him. Then he was driven from the sons of men. His heart was made like the beast, and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. Daniel literally spent seven years grazing with the beast of the field because of his pride. The text says, They fed him with grass like oxen. His body was wet with the dew of heaven till he knew that the Most High God rules in the kingdom of men and appoints over it whomever he chooses. Now look at verse 22. We talk about his disregard of history. But you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart although you knew all this. What happened to Nebuchadnezzar was a well-known fact. Back in chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar talked about how he had been responsible for building Babylon the Great. Back in chapter 4, verse 30, the king said, Is not this great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling by my mighty power and for the honor of my majesty? Let me tell you what he came to understand. The Most High rules in the kingdoms of men. It is God that puts people in power. It is God that removes people from power. Now we talk about disregarding history. Here was a king that disregarded history. Somebody has said on one occasion that those who do not learn from history are destined to repeat history. Someone else has said, if there's anything we've ever learned from history, it is we haven't learned from history. Now you think about the significance of those statements. There are a lot of people, they see what happened in the past. The problem is they don't learn. You remember in Romans chapter 15, verse 4, Paul said, Whatsoever things were written before time, beforehand, were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope? You go back and you look at all the great men and women of God and you see some of the things that, that they did in a positive way and you can learn from that. And then I think about some of the great people of God that made mistakes, blunders as we would say. And hopefully and prayerfully we can learn from that. But here's the sad fact. There are a lot of people in the world today, there are a lot of folks in the church, when it comes to history, haven't learned a thing. You take, take mamas and daddies today that grew up in a household with godly parents and have sought to the best of their ability to pass on that faith. Very commendable. Grateful to God for people like that. But then there are others 
that grow up in a household with no supervision, no spiritual guidance, no inclination towards spiritual things, and that cycle does what? It continues to repeat itself time and again. I wonder how many people this past week were pulled over by the police and taken to jail for drunken driving. I wonder how many people. I'm not a prophet, nor am I the son of, the prophet, son of a prophet, as Amos said. But I can tell you this. There will be people all over this country today that will go to jail for drunken driving. You know why? Because they always think they can beat the system. Haven't learned a thing. There are people this week that will step out into eternity from a drug overdose. I promise you, it'll happen. They'll shoot heroin. They'll take cocaine. They'll OD as from a combination of a number of drugs. And they can look back and they can see friends and other people that have died because of an abuse of drug usage. You know what they're thinking? It won't happen to me. Bottom line, haven't learned a thing. Not one thing. Why is it we always think that we won't be the statistic? That somehow we can beat the system? Well, you may beat it for a while, but you won't beat it forever. You know, Paul said, Be not deceived. God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. The bottom line is this. Many times we fail to learn from history. There are things going on in our country, and you look at this cycle that just continues to repeat itself over and over and over again. There is an escalation of drug usage and crime and murder, etc. And you see all of these social programs and all the money that is spent to somehow try to rectify these problems. Look, the bottom line is, whatever we're trying, it's not working. What's the definition of stupidity, of ignorance? Doing the same thing over and over and over and expecting different results. There are some folks in Washington, they don't get that. They don't understand that. Sometimes we just don't learn from history, do we? And then there's a second thing. Not only did Belshazzar disregard history, but he defied heaven. Listen, if you would, to what is said in verse 23. Now, this is a stinging indictment to Belshazzar. Back in verse 22, he said, But you, his son Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, although you knew all this, that is, you knew everything about Nebuchadnezzar. You knew what happened to him. He said, but you have lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven. There's always the danger of pride. The problem of pride and those who become proud and have the idea that they're responsible for their achievements and their success and their power and their prestige, etc. The penalty is you can fall. 
Solomon said, pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. Isn't it amazing that sometimes people in the world will lift their hand before God and talk about all the great things that they have done and their power and their ability and their success and their prosperity and never once think about God. I think about our country and how for whatever reason we've got this mentality that we are untouchable, that we're off limits. I have no idea what the future holds, but I can look back at history. We are not a theocracy as Israel of old was, but when I look at the mentality of the people in our country. I see a lot of people that are defying the living God who are basically in one way or another shaking their fist in the face of God and saying, you know what, we don't need you, God. We don't need your word. We don't need to be governed by your word. Belshazzar disregarded history. And again, you just look at the handwriting on the wall. Do you really think what we have in place today is going to rectify the moral ills of our country? The programs that we have in place today, I'm talking about social programs, are they going to rectify the violence, the crime, the drug usage? Is that the answer? Maybe we need to build bigger prisons, more prisons. Did you know that our country, if I'm not mistaken, leads the world in incarceration? Unbelievable. The answer is the gospel. You want to change this world, you've got to go back to the gospel. That's the only thing that's going to change this world. And then there was a third thing. He disregarded history, he defied heaven, and he defiled the holy. I mentioned a moment ago, the things that Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple, which had been in Jerusalem. Apparently, Nebuchadnezzar had stored those things away. Belshazzar, in this drunken feast, has them brought out. And they pour their wine in the contents of these golden cups, and they drink from them. So here's what chapter, 20, chapter 5, verse 23 says. He said, you've lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. They have brought the vessels of the house before you. You and your lords, your wives, your concubines have drunk wine from them. You have praised the gods of silver and gold, bronze and iron, wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know. And the God who holds your breath in his hand and owns all your ways... You have not glorified. Let me tell you what. What God was saying is, my friend, you are in a lot of trouble. You're in more trouble than you have any idea. You have no idea the trouble you're in. Now, could God say that about a lot of us? Could he say to us, my friend, you're in more trouble than you can ever imagine? Defiling the holy. 
Whatever gave us the right in this country that we could somehow rewrite God's law concerning marriage? Who gave the Supreme Court that, that right? Jesus asked the question in Matthew chapter 19, verse 3, Have you not read that he which made them in the beginning made them male and female? Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother, cleave unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. Did God grant me the liberty to decide, you know what? Marriage is not between a man and a woman. It's between two men, two women. It doesn't really matter. What gave us the right? I'm talking about as a nation of people. What gave us the right to conclude that we could tamper with something that is holy and sacred in the eyes of God? Let me tell you what. Nobody gave us that right. And the Supreme Court did not have that right. What gave us the right as a nation of people to say, you know what, if you're not comfortable with your pregnancy, you can terminate the birth of that baby. If it's an inconvenience to you, then you can dispose of that baby. What gave us the right to play God and say, this child lives, this child dies. Whatever happened to the sanctity of human life? And then we wonder why killing is so prevalent in our streets. The Supreme Court sent a memo to every person in America back in 1973 when they concluded that abortion is a right granted to the American people. We're some 50 million babies in now that have been aborted. Let me tell you what. God treasures human life. And the Bible says in Proverbs chapter 6 that God hates the hands of those who shed innocent blood. We ought to wake up. We need to step back and think about it. We're not the master of the ship. We're not the captain of this ship, so to speak. We need to understand that God is the one in control. Belshazzar learned this the hard way. So there are some things that are sacred. There are some things that are holy. Whatever gave us the right to conclude that human life is expendable. And then I think about those who have purged the Word of God from the public sector. And we can't pray in public. Let me tell you what. Somebody could get up and read from the Quran and they'd be praised. You read from the Scriptures and what they want to do, jump on you with all fours. Let me talk about the end of Belshazzar. Verse 24, very quickly, our time's gone. Then the fingers of the hand were sent from him, and this writing was written. This is the inscription that was written, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Upharsin. And then the interpretation, Mene, God has numbered your kingdom and finished it, Tekel. You have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Verse 30. That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Chaldeans, was slain, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. You know what God said to Belshazzar? You're done, my friend. It's over. Back in chapter 4, his grandfather learned an important lesson. 
He came to understand that the most high rules and the kingdoms of men. Verse 32. We need to understand there is a sovereign God in heaven and he controls all things. God is on his throne. The handwriting was on the wall. It's very clear. What God was saying to Belshazzar and the Babylonian kingdom, you are done. By way of application in closing, if you haven't obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ, if your life is not right with the Lord, when you step out into eternity, let me just tell you this, you're done. You have no hope. You're without hope and without God, Ephesians 2, verse 12. However, if you obey the gospel, the Bible says that you enjoy the forgiveness of your sins. All your sins are washed away. On Pentecost Day, Peter said, Repent, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. God will add you to the church. You'll enjoy all spiritual blessings in Christ, Ephesians 1, 3. If you're here today and you're not faithful to the cause of Christ and your life's not what it ought to be, and you look back and you think about mistakes in your life, I want to ask you a question. Remember when you were faithful? Look at your life now. Have you learned anything? Have you learned anything about your past? Have you learned anything about yourself? Don't you think it's time to make it right? You see, if you step out into eternity, into eternity, unfaithful, let me tell you what, you're done. You don't have any prayer. You don't have one prayer. So what I would encourage you to do, acknowledge your wrongdoing. You know, James said, confess your faults one to another, pray one for another. We have that right, and God will abundantly pardon. I want to close by saying Belshazzar was foolish. There are a lot of people in our country today, a lot of folks in high positions, making foolish decisions and doing foolish things. My prayer is that those who are in positions of power will wake up and realize that there is a God in heaven and He is on His throne. And not just acknowledge that, Recognize that His ways are the best ways, the only way. Won't you come as we stand and sing?